You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 6 p.m. on April 23, 2023, presented by Reverend Chris Duke. Well, as you know, we've been working through the Gospel of John and um, we're now up to chapter 18 and from chapter 13 through to the end of the chapter, um, that's actually, um, if you look at those particular chapters, they're all all happening within a few days, okay? And it's what we call uh, Jesus' final discourse, uh, the final discourse. It's really all of the events from the uh, last, or from the triumphal entry, um, you know, Palm Sunday, and then uh, uh, the Passover, and then the, the, the uh, crucifixion, and, um, and of course, his, his resurrection. So we're not quite at the crucifixion yet, we're where um, just a moment uh, or two after the uh, Last Supper has occurred. So uh, that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight. So we've got chapter John chapter 18, we're going to read uh, the first 11 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheaf. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, As we consider this passage, we ask that you would speak to us now in such a way that we would have great understanding of of the magnificence of what is happening here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 17, we have the high priestly intercessory prayer of Jesus. It's by his ministry of intercession that he brings all of his followers to glory, interceding for us at at the Father's throne that we find ourselves secure. In John 17 verse 1 it says, Father, the hour has come. What hour is this? This is the hour when he completes his work. This is the hour that begins at the cross. 
then the resurrection, then 40 days of instruction, and then the ascension and the exaltation and the launching of his ministry of intercession. All of this is going to happen in the next six weeks from this moment. Jesus up to this point has been verbally criticised, although never touched physically. But he's been stalked by men who have followed his steps, wanting him dead, but it hasn't happened. All because his hour has not yet come. The hour to come is only by the divine will of God. When Jesus will die at this time of Passover as God's true Passover lamb. At this moment, we now have in view the beginning of the horror that is to follow. We have the agony. We have the sweating of blood. We have anguish. We have loneliness. We have betrayal. We have the arrest. We have the injustice, the torture, and ultimately the execution of the cross. But John wants us to see and be certain of one thing. Jesus is no victim. Jesus is no victim. The purpose of John's gospel as given in, in John chapter 20 verse 30, 31 is this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is the anointed one. He is God's incarnate son. On the surface, this appears to be the blackest and darkest of all times, but it also puts the glory of Christ on majestic display because through this darkness, Christ's wondrous perfections shine through the ugliness and the hatred and the pain and the suffering. And we know because Jesus is the Son of God. He's always exhibited total control over all people in all circumstances, including his arrest, as we've just read about, and including in his mistreatment, including in his unjust trial and his execution and his resurrection. The hour has now come. It's the worst hour. It's Satan's hour. But in, in another sense, it's the best hour because it's God's hour. In the first 11 verses of John 18, John wants us to see the glory of Christ. He wants us to see it in his betrayal and his arrest. Judas, the, ugly, the ugliest of all apostates, traitor of all traitors, the archetypal hypocrite is on display. It's in the middle of the night, everything is dark and the hearts of the people surrounding Jesus and the disciples are darker than all. But in the midst of all this darkness, John shows us our Lord's glory. We see his divine resolve. We see his divine power, his divine love, and we see his divine righteousness. Those four things 
shine through this passage. It isn't just Satan's plot to kill Jesus because in Acts 2 we're told that, that God also had a predetermined plan. Here God and Satan come together on the same person for two very different reasons. But we need to remember, friends, that our God triumphs. In verse 1 it says that Jesus entered the garden. Of course, it's speaking about the Garden of Gethsemane. This is his divine resolve, his divine determination, his divine courage. He is moving to his own death. He's undaunted, he's unhesitating, and he's courageous. He is far more courage than a martyr dying for a good cause. Jesus was going to, to a death that just isn't physical, friends. His death which will absorb all the wrath of God for all the people who will ever believe in him throughout all of human history. And Jesus will cry out, why to God? Why have you forsaken me? Even though I'm the spotless, sinless, eternal son of God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' resolve displays a divine level of courage. He's totally pure and is absolutely sinless. And now the fury of God will be poured out on him. Why? For the sins of his people. And so we find here infinite courage. And so it was late. And Jesus, with, with 11 of his disciples, they left the city. They went down into a valley. You see, they went into a ravine called the Kidron to the garden. They'd go down the valley and then they'd climb up into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples, they're sticking close to Jesus. They had been all this week. They're still with him. And they walk through Jerusalem in the darkness. They stop with him here and, and they hear his prayer as we read in, in chapter 17. And then they begin to walk again up to the garden on the Mount of Olives, which was a familiar place. The other gospel writers, of course, they call it the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus had left Jerusalem many times going through Stephen's Gate to go to Bethany, just a few kilometres away. Bethany was where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, his beloved friends. He often spent time resting there. It was too late to head back to Bethany to find his friends. Therefore, he stopped around the edge of the Mount of Olives. He knew exa exactly what was going to happen that evening because in verse 4 it says, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? This shows his resolve. A symbolic reality must have faced our Lord when he crossed the little Kidron stream. Being up in the temple during the daytime, of course there had been a massacre of lambs. The Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Their blood was running down the altar like a river and it would run into channels, taking that blood out the rear side of the temple mount, down 
the slope into the Kidron stream. The Kidron would be bright red with blood. We don't know how many lambs were slain that Passover. But history tells us, 30 years later it was recorded that 256,000 lambs were slaughtered at that year's Passover. It was a bloodbath. Imagine what the temple courts were like with the blood of all those lambs flowing down the water, flowing down the altar and into the Kidron, into the water, and Jesus steps across all that blood that cannot, that cannot and will not and it can never take away sin. And he's on the way to offer himself as the only sacrifice that can. His own sacrifice was vividly on his own mind. Now the garden, of course, is called Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane means? It means oil press. After the olives are, are all pressed to make olive oil, Jesus and his disciples had been there many times. They all knew it well. And Judas knew it, knew it well. Jesus enters the garden. Why did Jesus go to the garden of Gethsemane? Why there? Well, it was after all a kind of home for him. In John chapter 7, verse 53, it says, and everyone went to his own house. And then in John 8, 1, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And then we remember what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Perhaps Jesus went there because it was like a home for him. He could pray there. He'd already prayed in Gethsemane earlier, sweating great drops of blood. The disciples were supposed to pray with him, but they fell asleep. He escaped the crowds and had fellowship with his disciples in that garden. But the real reason he went there was because Judas was coming here and Jesus knew that. Judas knew that Jesus would be there because he'd been going there night after night. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. It was usual for Jesus to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want us to remember Dear friends, Jesus was no victim. He moved, he moved to his betrayal resolutely. He moved to his arrest. He moved to his own execution. He wasn't trapped. He wasn't tricked or deceived or fooled or surprised. The leaders of Israel wanted to get to him. They wanted him sooner, but they feared the people. So Jesus made it easy for them. Judas knew that's where he'd be. And John chapter 10, 17 to 18 reminds us concerning Jesus, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. A coward would have gone anywhere and everywhere but there. So Roman soldiers and Jewish uh, Jewish uh, temple police, 
and the elders and the chief priests, they arrive and they're led by Judas. Matthew 26 verse 47 says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Why were they so largely armed with weapons? Perhaps because earlier in the week, Jesus on his own ran everyone out of the temple. Remember the story? And in the temple, there would have been thousands of people. They knew his power. They saw it at the beginning of his ministry and they saw it earlier this week. And then we read in verse 2, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches and weapons. This is really an amazing group. What we have here is Jewish temple police. And, of course, they monitored the thousands of people that would visit the temple. There were several hundred temple police for sure. We don't know the exact number. Then it says there was a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort usually consisted of 600 men. So as many as 600 Roman soldiers. And add a few hundred uh, of the temple police and a few others, and as this crowd moved through the darkness, others may have joined them. As many as a thousand people were coming to that little place in that darkness. They had this massive force because they recognised the power of Jesus. They knew Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew Jesus was a miracle worker. They were very aware of his power because here is the idiocy of unbelief because they send an army. They send an army to capture an unarmed Galilean carpenter and teacher. Maybe they had a, a full force because of Jesus' popularity in case things got out of hand. It's interesting, they had torches. At Passover time, that time of the year, this time now in Israel, you have a full moon. And usually Israel has beautiful clear skies at this time. Night is almost like daylight, yet they came with torches. Why? Because they assumed that Jesus would try and escape and he'd try and do a runner. And there were trees beyond the olive grove and they thought they would have to subdue him so they were armed to the teeth, ready to hunt him down. And so we'll take our clubs and we'll take our swords and we'll crush him into submission. But that didn't happen. By the, by the way, the only name mentioned is Judas as well as Malchus. Malchus. Malchus was there because he was the slave of the high priest. He wasn't a soldier. And he was there so Jesus could do one more miracle to make their crime even worse by restoring his ear. And so Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss. Matthew, Mark 
And Luke tell us that he goes up and he and kisses Jesus on the face repeatedly, which is the traditional kiss of affection. And here we see Judas as the arch, arch-typical, archetypal hypocrite. Inferiors kiss the hand, slaves kiss the foot. The kissing the face is a sign of love and affection between equals. He just wasn't what he, he he's just wanting Jesus to think for a moment all is good. But then the officers grab him, and Jesus says to him, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The Son of God with a kiss? Verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew because he understood Genesis 3. He knew because he understood Genesis 22, Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 10 to 12. Jesus, as the Son of God, knew from all eternity that he was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He told his disciples, they're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me up and they're going to spit on me and they're going to crucify me. He knew it all because he was the incarnate. He knew it during his life. He knew every single detail that was going to happen. So he anticipated this very moment in his life. Jesus knew. And it wasn't just that he knew, he was walking toward physical pain and nails and spears. He was walking into the blast furnace of the wrath of God, his Father. But Jesus had a divine resolve. And Judas, in your big moment in human history, all the glory goes to Christ. And sadly, you are the horror. Verse 4, Jesus says, Who is it you want? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says literally to them, he says in the Greek, he says, The ego ami, I am. It's called the tetragrammaton, the name of God. Now this is difficult to comprehend with devilish boldness. Judas is standing there because he's under the full control of Satan. Jesus doesn't wait for anybody to say anything, so he speaks to Judas first. Are you going to betray me with a kiss? And then he faces them and says, who is it that you want? Why does he ask that? He wants to hear them give the warrant, the warrant for his arrest. Who do they have the right to arrest? Whose name is on the warrant? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am. And when he said them, said that to them in verse 6, I am. What happened? They drew back and they fell to the ground. They fell backwards. All these hundreds of them collapsed and they fell to the ground. These great, burly, angry, hostile, aggressive soldiers and police, the religious leaders, the chief priests, they all went down like dominoes 
This is his power. And once again, John lets us see Christ where he's all glorious. He gives the name of God. He gives his name. He declares his deity, his divinity. And all the authorities and powers are literally falling backwards at the power of his name, armed to the teeth and ready for war. And he simply speaks the name of God and they collapse. Friends, Jesus here is no victim. He has complete control over them and one word is enough. There is power in his words. Remember, he created by his word. He can destroy by a word. He's the Lord God who speaks. He controls in existence by whatever he says. They all fell helpless at his feet. Divine resolve and divine power. And so now we have thirdly divine love. In verse 7 he says again, Who is it you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And they're picking themselves up off the ground. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. He's saying, you have no official warrant to arrest my disciples. I want to hear your orders. Jesus of Nazareth. That's a formal declaration of the warrant. That's their orders. Let the disciples go. They have now repeated their orders twice and they've declared that they have no right to lay their hands on, on his disciples. Why is this an issue? Because in verse 9 it says that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. The saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Back in John chapter 17, verse 12, in his high priestly prayer, he prays this. He prays, I have not lost one of those you gave me. So he protects them out of that great love that he has for them. He doesn't allow the disciples to be arrested and also to be brought uh, be, uh, to trial and, and also to judgment. He protects them so that he will fulfil the scripture and none of them will be lost. If they had been arrested, their faith would have been completely overwhelmed. It was hard enough as it was, wasn't it, that Jesus was arrested because they scattered. And then Peter, who, who valiantly follows initially, what happens with Peter? He denies his Lord twice not twice, thrice. The Lord knew that at this stage, if they were arrested, their faith would fail. But faith can't fail, can it? Faith can't fail. If I could lose my salvation, I would lose it. It's not dependent upon me. There are two reasons that we'll all get to heaven. The Lord prays us into glory and prevents us from those things that would be deadly to our faith. And here's a dramatic illustration of the great high priest that Jesus is. Out of love, he's protecting his weak sheep. 
They're not going to be arrested. And so he acts in a special, unique way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says to us, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The reason we get, in, get to heaven isn't just because God says it. It's because he sees to it and Jesus is ever active in it. So what is this passage teaching us? It's teaching us that we'll never be put through something that would destroy our faith. You cannot be lost because Jesus will pray you into heaven and he'll protect you into heaven. I've lost none. That's what Jesus prayed in chapter 17. He ever lives to bring us to heaven, to bring us into eternal life. Now, Peter, wonderful Peter, just should have stood and said, wow, thank you, Lord. But no, Peter being Peter in verse 10, what does he do? He has a sword. So he draws it and he takes a whack at the head of Malchus, the slave of the high priest. And Malchus, he quickly ducks and only loses an ear. You know, many of us are, are much like Peter. But Jesus says to us, I'll protect you. Just relax and stay where you are. You don't need to grab your sword and hack your way through the, this world. I'll take care of you. And then the Lord performs the last miracle before the miracle of the cross. It's an outstanding miracle in front of this whole crowd, a thousand people roughly. You'd think they'd all fallen down again and worship, the, worship Jesus on the spot when they saw this miracle, wouldn't you? None of us will ever be lost because of the supreme love that causes him to protect us. Now that leads us to a final reality. We've seen his divine resolve, we've seen his divine power and his divine love, now his divine righteousness comes through in verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. Put the sword away, Peter. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, Jesus said, All they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. What's he doing? What's Jesus doing? He's upholding God's law. What law is that? Well, we go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. If you slay a man, you give up your life. God instituted capital punishment. Our Lord upheld capital punishment, even in the case of Peter. Peter, you take a man's life and they'll take your life and rightly so. We don't fight. Jesus is going to die voluntarily, so Peter, stop. You're trying to stop my death. And Peter intruded in the purposes of Christ so many times, didn't he? No, no, Lord, you're not going to die. And what does Jesus said? We read it earlier. 
Get behind me, Satan. You see, the glory of Christ in divine righteousness, he upholds the law as always. So with the display of his glory, he says in verse 11, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup of wrath, the cup of fury, the cup of the vengeance of God. Shall I not drink it? Friends, Jesus is no victim. This is the all-glorious Son of God, willingly, voluntarily, agreeing, joyfully, who gives himself up in our place. He gives himself up in our place. What a wonderful moment of reflection this can be for us as we think about what Jesus is doing here. He went to the cross for our sin, voluntarily, willingly, so that we might be redeemed, that the price may be paid for us, for us as an individual, for us collectively, for his church, from the dawn of man to the end of time. What a wonderful saviour our Lord is. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was in total control even when he was arrested. And we thank you for the events here. And as they're displayed, he protected his disciples. None of them were, were lost. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to fully believe in you and realise that you are with us always. And the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, against any of us, because you are with us and no one can pluck, pluck us out of your hands. We thank you for this. Lord, help us all to come to faith in you, a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and the living God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.